Morning, everyone. Is the clock fixed? Okay. <laughs> I guess maybe I preached too long during first service. I had to fix the clock. <laughs> Father, what a privilege it is every Lord's Day to gather and worship you. We thank you so much for what your Son has done. Thank you for the sacrifice that was made that provides the forgiveness of our sins, but even more than that, the um, righteousness of Christ being given to us and put to our accounts just as our unrighteousness put to Christ's accounts, and he took that punishment that we deserved. And so we come here with thankful hearts, Lord, if by chance um, our hearts aren't as thankful as they should be, then we pray that even now you'd be stirring us up with the appreciation and affection for Christ that we should have, and also the anticipation of how you want to speak to us through your word. As we continue to discuss wisdom, Lord, I pray that you'd use me as your vessel to minister to your people. Just give them the message that you have for them, reveal the wonderful truths that are contained in these verses. Think about the hours I put into the sermon, but if there's anything I shouldn't say, then please restrain me, and I pray that if there's anything that's not in my notes that you'd have me share with these people, because you knew who would be here and what they needed to hear, that you'd bring that to my mind, and I pray that you can be pleased with what takes place. We want you to be worshipped and adored during this time, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. If you want to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17, <clears throat> excuse me. The title of this morning's sermon is The Importance of Applying Wisdom, Part 1. The Importance of Applying Wisdom, Part 1. These verses in Deuteronomy 17 are going to lay a foundation for this morning's sermon and then the next sermon. Next Sunday, you'll be listening to Jake Motzkus preach. You'll be blessed by his sermon. I'm about halfway through the notes. I think it's excellent. I'll be at the Elder Retreat this week, as Pastor Nathan shared, and Pastor Nathan will be there too, so neither of us will be, really have the time to commit to uh, studying God's Word and preparing a sermon as we'd like, and so I've invited Jake to preach again. I like you hearing from him at least once a year. I think he does a great job, but so you have to keep this in mind, these verses, for when we, when we uh, continue the week after that. So I've been in a series on wisdom. The last two sermons we looked at Solomon, and I've had this nagging um, kind of concern associated with Solomon, but also with wisdom in general, that you understand how important it is not just to receive wisdom, but to apply it. That's really the other side of this, I think we can commonly think that if we have received wisdom, we've done enough. You know, if we've, if we've read that Christian book, attended that Christian conference, listened to that sermon, or listened to Christian radio, that we've gained wisdom, and that's where our responsibility ends. And Solomon shows us, really, I think he's the best example in all of Scripture, of the importance not just of receiving wisdom, but applying it. Something else occurred to me. I have these, the, these verses in mind prior to listening to the presidential debate. The first one took place this past week. I suspect it probably was as unpleasant for you to listen to as it was for me. I almost used the word debate loosely. And we are in an election season, and so as we look at these verses, I understand we don't have a king, and so it's not a perfect correlation here. But what we're seeing is what God wanted for a national leader, or what he wanted for the leader of his people. And so I think by extension, there is some application as we read about what God said uh, to his people regarding the king, of the, the king of the nation of Israel, for us to consider what God wants for his leaders. And I don't just mean, um, you know, nationally. I think there's application for this election season, really for leaders in general. Could be leaders in, in the church, could be leaders in the homes. If you're a man, or if you're a husband or father, or you aspire to be one, then God uh, expects you to be a leader. And there's application in these verses for leaders really in any capacity. And so I just think there's, um, 
there's a duality to these verses that I think can benefit us in, uh, in understanding wisdom, but also in helping direct our voting and our hearts and what we should be looking for in a candidate during, uh, you know, during this election season. Now, some years ago, I think it was about 2008, I was serving at Grace Baptist in California. I was part-time a youth pastor. The church grew, and then I was hired full-time as basically an associate pastor. And Barack Obama was running for president. And I remember I saw a clip of this speech that he made to Planned Parenthood. And I don't know if any of you remember the rating that he received from Planned Parenthood. Does anyone remember? It was like A++. And if they had gotten, had a higher rating than that, he would have received that one. And so in this speech, he was talking about murdering babies. He wouldn't say that. I mean, he was just saying he's pro-choice. That's, remember, I told you we should use biblical language, right? So you don't say pro-choice. You don't say gay marriage, right? You don't say an affair. You say adultery. An affair is like a, a difficult situation. Well, I went through this affair. There was a, so people want to wash down what God's Word says, but it's, an, it's adultery. Abortion is murder. There's no such thing as gay marriage, there's homosexuality. There's not even homosexual marriage because that's not even marriage. Marriage is one man, one woman for life, right? So we want to make sure we use the right terminology. And as I was listening to Barack Obama talking about murdering babies in this speech, I became pretty upset about the possibility that we could have um, people at Grace Baptist that might vote for him. And so I said, we need... So the first opportunity I had, I caught Pastor Joe the senior pastor at the time, and pretty much a mentor to me. And I said, we have got to show this clip to the church. God forbid anyone would vote for this man. We need to do everything we can. I mean, we need to proudly tell people we'll perform church discipline if if they vote for him. And so he very calmly, I mean, I don't know if I seem at this time in my life like an overly zealous person at times. Don't Don't answer that out loud, but I'm considerably mellower now than I was back then, okay? And so I'm telling Pastor, you know, we got to do this, we got to do this. And so he very calmly, very wisely, he just says, I'd like you to go and listen to this sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He didn't say whether we were or were not going to show this video. And he says, after you listen to the sermon, I want you to come back and we'll have a conversation about this video clip. And do you remember a few weeks ago, I kind of compared the Christian life with, with fitness or working out, that if you're a fit person, you don't remember every single workout or every single healthy meal, but they all benefited you? Well, if you're fit, spiritually speaking, if you're fit as a Christian, you're not going to remember every single sermon or every single devotional time. But I did say there, will prob- there are probably a couple sermons that you can remember just because of how impactful they were. In my Christian life, that was one of the most impactful sermons. There has, I can honestly say I don't think that there's been another sermon that has impacted my preaching, at least, as much as that one did. And so I'm going to kind of try to boil it down, the main point of this sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones for you. He said that as pastors regarding preaching or regarding uh, politics in our congregations, we have two choices. He said we can tell our congregations how to vote and some pastors will, will do this. And this is basically what I was advocating for to Pastor Joe. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying that I didn't have to listen too long to his sermon to get why Pastor Joe wanted me to listen to it. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying that the weakness of this approach is that it doesn't deal with people's what? With their hearts. People are voting based on what you're telling them but perhaps in the language of Romans 14, 5, they might not be convinced or esteemed 
in their own minds. They're just doing it because that's what you've told them to do. And so while that can be a good thing, obviously, to not have someone vote for some uh, ungodly president or candidate, at the same time, Martin Lloyd-Jones saw a much better approach to politics within the church or a much better approach to preaching um, to congregations. He said that we should preach, pastors have a responsibility to preach the gospel, preach the word, preach Christ, and as the gospel goes forward, as the word of God goes out, as Christ is preached, then what happens with people's hearts? They're changed, and then those changed hearts direct people's what? Their votes. They vote based on the change that has taken place in their hearts, which is a far superior approach than telling people, I'm your pastor, vote for this person, don't vote for that person. Now, we're thankful, um, we're very thankful for individuals in our congregation who provide opportunities for us to vote on legislation. We're thankful for people in our congregation who are active politically. Our nation looks the way it does because more Christians are not voting or they're not voting at least the way Christians should vote. We're thankful for the people who, um, you know, are political and affect what happens politically in our nation. But as far as what happens from this pulpit, this pulpit has a responsibility to preach the word of God and to preach the gospel, and his hearts are changed, and that moves you to want to go out and see these changes in our nation or vote according to God's word. And so if you were to say to me, well, what, what do you want, Pastor Scott? Do you want everyone to vote like you? I would not say, no, I, want everyone to, no, I don't want everyone to vote like me. What I would say is I want everyone to vote according to God's word. I want people to vote in a way that is in most agreement with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a few practical ways this can take place. I mean, in a sense, this has been a little bit of a, an anchor for me over the years when people have come to me and had um, things that they thought I should preach or do. This has been an anchor to be able to hold to the scriptures and feel that God's uh, desire for me would be to preach the word and not, not turn the church itself into a political juggernaut, that the responsibility of the church is to preach the gospel. Now, the way that this can work, I think I probably mentioned um, socialism a couple times. N- not a lot, hopefully not a lot. I know I remember at least one time talking about it in Sunday school But let me ask you this. If a pastor preaches what the Word says about theft, if a pastor preaches what the Word says about self-responsibility, and that goes forward and convicts people about theft and the importance of being responsible, do you ever have to tell people to vote against socialism? No, you don't. Do you ever have to, would you ever have to condemn welfare, or at least the way that it's done? I mean, there is a place for welfare, as we know, a much better place for, a much better way for it to be done as we look at God's law and then see the example of it in Ruth, in the book of Ruth. But are you ever going to have to condemn the way that our, our government does it if you condemn um, selfishness or laziness? You're going to see people's hearts changed, and then you're going to see them recognize the evils of certain systems like socialism without ever having to directly condemn it. Here's another example. If a pastor preaches about the value of life, where he preaches about every human being being made in the image and likeness of God, then is a pastor going to have to condemn a candidate that wants to murder babies? 
No, because people will already be so horrified because they appreciate what God's Word has to say, that there would be an individual running for an office in our nation at the potential of that individual being elected, that they'll, they'll go out and they'll work against that person being elected. What about marriage? Again, I don't want to say gay marriage, but if someone was, if a candidate was pro-homosexuality, would a pastor ever have to condemn that candidate, or could he preach what the Bible says about marriage? Couldn't a pastor just talk about what the Bible says marriage is, and, that, and, and say what is an abomination, or what is condemned so strongly in Scripture, so that when someone hears someone, a candidate promoting something that is such an affront to God, that Christian would be horrified of that person being elected, and they would never give any thought to voting for that individual. What about debt? Let's think about debt. I think I've spoken pretty um, straightforwardly about debt from this pulpit. I don't think any of you have to wonder what I think about it. <laughs> Clearly not a fan. Well, if I, if I, when, since I preached about debt, that tells you what I think about our nation's debt, doesn't it? And so if you see this, what this is going to do when a candidate stands up and he's, pre, and he's promoting large government, large government spending, the government overseeing every area of life and society, and all of the spending that's going to be involved in that, and how the debt is going to skyrocket as a result, then what is going to happen? You're going to think, well, if the Bible says this, I know I should not vote for this person. Your heart has now been changed. You know that what this person, and, and it's not it's an even better approach than me saying, well, don't vote for that person for this reason. And then you're like, well, should I really trust Pastor Scott? I mean, I guess I can trust him. But to know that this is what God's word says and that God's word tells you not to vote for this person because this person doesn't understand self-responsibility. And if if someone stands up and they say, and you understand why it's super attractive, how much it appeals to the flesh when a candidate says, we're going to give you this for free and this will be free and we want this to be free and everything's free there's this kind of nagging question in the back of your mind as you're listening to that person. And what's that question? Well, does someone have to pay for that? <laughs> I mean, is there a point at which everything can be free? Or if there's, if there's free medicine, do the doctors have to be paid? If there's free education, do the professors have to be paid? And then you start thinking, well, what this means is if these people get this for free and the government's going to pay for these people to have it for free, then that means that they're going to have to pay those people with money that they take from other people. And what's that called? Oh, that's theft. So then I shouldn't vote for that person. And this deals with people's hearts. This is the way to preach. This is the way to lead congregations. This is the way to shepherd um, so that the right things happen politically. Now, with that in mind, I mean, keep that in mind as we look at these verses here while God talks about what he wanted at least the leader of the nation of Israel to look like. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that your Lord is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So God knew that in the future, the nation was going to ask for a king. And even the way this is worded, what did God want for the nation of Israel? He wanted them to be, it starts with an H. He wanted them to be holy, right? We know that, right? He, I thought someone else, was holy that tough of a word? To, I thought we'd guess a little more of that. So God wants the nation of Israel to be holy, but do you see how in this verse they want to be the opposite of holy? God says that they're going to ask to be what? 
like the other nations, which is to say they're going to ask to be unholy or not separate or not distinct. This happened in the days of the judges. It's in 1 Samuel, but it's in the days of the judges. Samuel's the last judge. He's the first prophet. And even this is instructive. When you read 1 Samuel 8, here's something else to think about during this election season. God says, you're going to get a king over you, and this king is just going to want to do what? Take, 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 take. If God warned the nation of Israel about having a leader over them who's just going to take, 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 then as a Christian, you apply the principle from that and you say what? We shouldn't have leaders over us that just take, 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 take. So I am not going to look for a leader that is going to take, 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 as God warned the nation of Israel about. Verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. In other words, he's supposed to be an Israelite. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the, here's what's interesting. God wanted the king of Israel to be an Israelite. He didn't want foreigners to be over them. There would be times when God would put a foreigner over the nation of Israel, but that's when they were disobedient, and he had to take them from being the head and make them the tail, Right? And how would he do that? How would he discipline them? He would put the nation of Israel, who was supposed to be over the other nations, under another nation. And when Israel was under another nation, that's when Israel would have what? As their king, basically. A foreigner. But it wasn't God's, they would be vassals to that king or subject to that uh, pagan nation or foreign nation that had a foreigner as a king. But that wasn't God's plan for the nation of Israel. They were to have an Israelite over them. God chose Saul as the first king. Never God's plan for Saul to have a lasting dynasty. And you say, well, yeah, God didn't want Saul to have a lasting dynasty because he was disobedient and God had to remove him. We actually know before Saul's disobedience that God did not want Saul to have a lasting dynasty because when you go back to the book of Judah, or back of, go back to the book of Genesis, when God is, when Jacob is blessing his sons, or God is blessing Jacob's uh, sons through Jacob, which tribe is chosen? Judah, the scepter will not depart from them, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so when a, a king ascends to the throne, Saul, who's from the tribe of Judah, you know that it's not God's plan for that king to continue or have an, an eternal dynasty. You know that he's going to have to come from the tribe of Judah. And so you say, well, then why did God give the throne to Saul from the tribe of Benjamin if God wanted a king from the tribe of Judah? Well, there's two reasons for that. One reason is that Saul was the people's king, or he was the king that the people wanted. What was their request? We want a king who will do what? Go out before us, lead us into battle. He will be physically impressive. The nation did not seem to care about the king spiritually, so they got a king that was physically impressive, but was spiritually bankrupt in Saul. Uh, He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else, so in a sense, God allowed Israel to have Saul because Saul was what Israel wanted. And then, tragically, when Saul could have went out to battle to battle the champion of the Philistines, right? I mean, when Goliath came and asked for the champion of Israel, who was head and shoulders taller or the giant of Israel that should have went out? It should have been Saul, and instead he allows this little shepherd boy, which is how God's king is introduced there, and he goes out against Goliath. Now, when... um, when God wants to punish his people, one of, or us as well, 
not just Israel, when I say his people, I don't just mean Israel in the Old Testament, I mean his children in the New Testament. One of the ways he does that is simply to give us what we want, to turn us over to our own desires. I mean, how many times have you seen someone want something, get it, and then suffer terribly as a result, or perhaps experience that yourself? And that's what God did with Israel. Now, the second reason that God, so that was the second reason God chose Saul was to judge the people, and then God graciously or he rejects Saul and then graciously chooses David to take his place. So God's looking forward into the future regarding the restrictions that he's going to put on the king or the things that God wants the people to keep in mind with the king. And here's why. It's, it's interesting to me as I was reflecting on it this week. You might intuitively think that when God talks about a king in his law, he's going to talk about all the things that the king gets to do or all of the powers, or all of the authorities that the king will have, all of the liberties and freedoms that the king will get to exercise. That's the opposite of what God did. When he wrote about a king in Deuteronomy, he talked about what a king shouldn't do. It's all about the restrictions that God puts on the king. And so in I read New King James through probably two-thirds or three-fourths of my Christian life before starting to read ESV. And in Kings, or in uh, New King James, it repeatedly says that the king must not multiply all these things. In the ESV, it says four times the king must not acquire these things for himself. And the reason is a king would have so much power and so much authority in the ancient world that he would be able to accumulate vast amounts of earthly resources that God did not want him to have. And so God says, make sure that the king doesn't multiply or acquire all of these things. Now, here's the question. Why didn't God want a king to acquire all of these things? Because then a king would be tempted to put his trust in all of these earthly resources instead of what? putting his trust in God himself. And this brings us to lesson one. God wants leaders trusting him. God doesn't want kings putting their trust in earthly resources. He wants kings or any leaders, for that matter, trusting him. And that's the same if you're a husband or father and you're listening to this. God, you, we need to be good stewards. God wants you to look at the amount in your bank account. He wants you looking at how much, uh, you know, preparing well, being a good steward financially. But God doesn't want you looking at that number and then being confident in your life or family because of that number. He wants our trust in him. And so this has application for uh, any leaders, including men over their homes. Look with me at verse 16. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Horses were like, if modern day would be tanks. And so for a king to multiply horses was for him to expand his military and then be confident in its power or in the might uh, or the strength of the army versus being confident in God. Consider these two verses. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, 16, the king is not saved by his great army. Now look at verse 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, 
lest his heart turn away. Okay, now, understandably, when we see this verse about a king acquiring wives, we're quickly tempted to think for uh, pleasurable reasons, or, or a simpler way to say it is, we're tempted to think that a king would acquire many wives to satisfy his lust. There's definitely truth in that. But in the Old Testament, what was one of the main reasons that kings married? For alliances or for political, re- political reasons. And can you see why God would not want a king multiplying wives? He would not want him establishing all of these alliances. And the reason that it happened for political reasons is, pr- is pretty simple to understand. Uh, a nation, two nations would ratify their alliance by taking the prince and the princess and putting them together because the idea is you're not going to attack the nation that your son or your daughter is part of, right? So that's how they'd ratify these alliances. And God didn't want this for two reasons. First, if a king multiplies wives or for political reasons or he starts creating all these alliances, he's going to then be tempted to trust in these alliances versus trusting in God himself. And the other thing is, if I say besides the nation of Israel, what was the other holy nation in the Old Testament? Exactly. There isn't one, right? (laughs) So if the nation, if a king is going to start making alliances with other nations, those nations are going to be pagan. They're going to worship false gods. And so the king is going to be marrying princesses that worship idols or that are pagan. And then those princesses are going to have the potential to do what with the king's heart? Turn it away or pull it away from God. And so God says this. He says it for political reasons. Don't do it for political reasons, but don't do it for spiritual reasons. Don't do it because you're going to be unequally yoked and it's going to have considerable... Pro- Can you imagine what that's like in a marriage when, you, when there's a king that wants to worship Yahweh or Jehovah, but then his wife wants to worship Malek or all the false gods of of her nation or that she has grown up with. And then imagine you've got a whole bunch of wives that feel that way that are pulling on the king's heart saying, you need to, you need to satisfy our desire for worship and, and we just want to worship our gods too. So keep that in mind for part two of this sermon. And so the other, and the third reason or final reason is that if you think about God's call on the nation of Israel to be holy, just a simple understanding of that communicates that God is not going to want the nation of Israel making alliances with all of these other nations. It's actually working against the call that God had on Israel. By going and establishing close relationships between Israel and other nations, it's, it's actually bringing Israel in the opposite direction of what God wanted, which was to be separate, distinct from the nations, not close and, and intimate uh, with them. All right. The nation should be strong for spiritual reasons because of their relationship with the Lord. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts, righteousness exalts a nation as opposed to political alliances exalting a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Look at the rest of verse 17. He shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. You look at this and you say, well, how would this, how would this help a king? If a king didn't have a strong standing army, but he had a lot of wealth, what could he do? basically buy one, an army. He could pay another nation to come and fight for him, which is what different kings, even of Israel and Judah, did in the Old Testament. Or he could simply hire mercenaries from another nation. Amaziah did that, and then he had to send the mercenaries home. So if he had enough money, then he could basically, my point is, he could put his confidence 
in all of the wealth he had because it would allow him to defend his nation, hiring another army or another nation to come and fight for him. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a leaf. So God didn't want kings or anyone trusting in their riches. Now do something for me. I kind of skipped over this quickly. Verse 16. Look back at verse 16. It says, the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people, so it's not even about the king himself, but it's about the people not returning to Egypt to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So it's not even about the king not returning to Egypt. It's about the king not bringing the Israelites back to Egypt. And notice how strong the language is. You shall never return that way again. And why would God say this? Think of the context that the book of Deuteronomy is written in. If this is the promised land and you got the Jordan right here, Deuteronomy is being written or, or preached because it's Moses's farewell sermons to the people on the east side of the Jordan with the nation of Israel about to enter. Remember, Moses struck the rock, and because of his sin, God was not going to allow him to enter the land. And so Deuteronomy is Moses's three farewell speeches to the nation that he has loved and led for 40 years, and he can't go with them, and he's warning them, do, do not go back and make the same mistakes that you made 40 years ago that got you in this situation. So the last time that they were on the border of the promised land, remember what happened 40 years earlier? They sent in the 12 spies. The spies come back. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, let's go into the land. We have God with us. We can conquer all these enemies. Ten of the spies were unbelieving and like a poison that just, um, you know, was toxic to the whole nation. It spread. Everyone's poisoned and unbelief. They rebel against God, and God says, I cannot bring this nation into the promised land to defeat these to defeat these enemies. They're too unbelieving. And then I will have them wander in the wilderness for 40 years so that the wilderness became the largest graveyard in the entire Old Testament. That generation died. And then their children were able to go into the promised land. And Moses is talking to these children. He renews the covenant with them. And he's basically telling them, you got in all of this trouble, or your parents got in all of this trouble 40 years ago by wanting to return to Egypt do not make the same mistake as them, and do not put a king over you that will look back to Egypt like your parents did 40 years earlier. And so he says, have nothing to do with the nation of Egypt. And this should make considerable sense to us, because the idea is when God has delivered us from something, then what? You don't go back to it, or you don't look back to it. I mean, you can, you can be delivered from something, look back, and apparently get turned into a pillar of salt, right? I mean, what happened with Lot's wife? She gets delivered from Sodom. She looks back on Sodom, another picture or type of the world. I don't take it to mean she physically looked back, although maybe she did. She looked back in her heart, longingly wanting to be there. And so God says, fine, you can, you can perish with the rest of the Sodomites there. And so she dies on the spot. Now, all of this has, cons- I want us to have some application from this, and all of it has considerable typology for us. There's considerable typology in Israel's deliverance from Egypt. There's considerable typology in Israel's journey through the wilderness. And there's considerable typology in Israel's entrance into the promised land. You're already familiar with an amount of the typology. For example, Israel is delivered from Egypt by the Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that what? Christ is our 
Passover lamb who delivers us from the true and greater Egypt or the world, as Pastor Nathan talked about during his communion devotion. What was the promised line a picture of? You don't know this probably until you read Hebrews 3 and 4, but it's a picture of the rest that God affords us through Christ. So all of this has tremendous typology. I'm going to expand it just a little bit. Now, here's the thing. My heart for you as your pastor is not to tell you every single thing the Bible says. We would never be able to cover. You might already feel like I go too slow. (laughs) So, but what I want to do pretty much every time I preach is I want to give you resources. I want to equip you for you to be able to read the word yourself and see things and understand things. So my heart is by understanding this typology, you can go home and you can read Exodus. You can read Numbers. You can read Deuteronomy. You can read Joshua. And then with an appreciation of this typology, understand the application that God has for you in it. Some of the typology that he's already revealed by saying Christ is your Passover lamb and the the promise line is a picture of the rest that you can have through Christ. So let me flesh this out a little more. I'll try to go through this quickly and make it very clear through this lesson. Lesson two, the typology part one, Egypt is a type of the world. Egypt is a type of the world. Anyone remember how many Israelites or at that time Hebrews went into Egypt at the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus? How many Hebrews went into Egypt? Does anyone remember? There's only 70. And you remember they multiplied so exponentially that Pharaoh said, oh, isn't it wonderful to have all these Hebrews here as part of our nation? No, he said they've become so powerful they're going to overtake our nation. We better start slaughtering the, the baby boys. In Exodus 12, I think it's verse 37, it says that Moses took out of Egypt about five or 600,000 males. And so if you do the math, what that means is 70 people went into Egypt and then grew. If you have five or 600,000 men, then you've got two or three million people. Moses took 70 people into Egypt, millions come out of Egypt. In that sense, Egypt serves as this womb for Israel to grow as a nation. Israel is born in Egypt like we are born in the world. And then part two, Moses is a type of the law. The law is given to Moses, which is why it's called the law of Moses, or why it's called the Mosaic law. Israel was delivered from Egypt by Moses, and if Egypt is a picture of the world, how were you delivered from the world? Now, you're going to say Christ, but here's, but I would say that it was the law that convinced you of your sin and your need for Christ or need for a Savior. You were in Egypt or you were in the world. Did you feel at that time like you needed Christ? You didn't recognize that you needed a Savior until you recognized that you were a sinner. And what convinced you that you were a sinner? Moses, or the law, did. And that's not my opinion. I mean, Romans 3.20 says, through the law is the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is not to help you be righteous enough to make it to heaven. The the purpose of the law, despite what most of the world thinks, is not a standard that by which you live well enough and then you get to go to heaven in your own effort. The law actually serves the opposite purpose of what most of the world thinks, which is instead of showing you how good you are or helping you become good, good enough to go to heaven, it has the opposite purpose of showing you how bad you are so that you know you need a savior. And once you become convicted of that, 
by the law or by Moses, then you look to Christ and are delivered. And this brings us to part three. Joshua is a type of Jesus. Joshua is a type of Jesus. Joshua and Jesus, they have the same name. I don't know if you didn't, have never heard that before, maybe most of you know that, but they have the same name. Jesus is the Greek form. Joshua is the Hebrew form. Jesus, Joshua, or Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. And Joshua serves as this dramatic picture or type of Christ as Joshua leads the nation of Israel into the Old Testament promised land. But the true and greater Joshua or Yeshua, Jesus, leads us into the true and greater promised land or rest that God has for his people. And then part four, Israel's journey is a type of our journey. Israel's journey is a type of our journey. All right, now, I know you're writing, but go ahead and look up or give me your attendance while I go over this next part. Um, so just follow me on the typology while we, while we kind of tie all of this together. Israel is born in Egypt, a picture type of the world like we're born in the world. Israel is delivered from Egypt at Passover like we are delivered from the world by Christ, the true and greater Passover lamb. If you're familiar with the books of Exodus and Numbers, what you wouldn't even believe it, believe it if it wasn't recorded there for us. What did Egypt or what did Israel regularly do with Egypt after getting out of it? Want to return to it. You're reading Exodus and Numbers and they repeatedly cry out to be returned to Egypt like they cried out when they were in Egypt to be delivered from it. It's almost like Israel is saying, oh, you know, things weren't that bad for us in Egypt. It was so good for us there. We were just joking earlier when we were crying about all of our bondage and slavery. Let us go back. We were so happy there. And there's this point, at least for me, and I, perhaps for you too, where you're kind of looking at Israel's ridiculousness in wanting to return to Egypt after God delivered them from it when you say what? I want to condemn Israel, but I'm kind of like them. God gives me victory, or he delivers me, or he redeems me, and then I kind of look back on where I used to live, what I used to do, what I used to experience, what I used to enjoy, and I want to go back to it. I'm as foolish as them. And that's, why, and that's my point. This is why Israel's journey serves as a type of our journey. We look a lot like Israel, or Israel looks a lot like us. And then the other thing, even after, even later, where instead of turning to God for help, where did Israel regularly turn for help? To Egypt. Just listen to a couple verses. 2 Kings 18.21 and Isaiah 36.6 say the same thing. Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, a broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Which is God's way of saying you're trusting in him. You shouldn't be. You should be doing what we talked about earlier and trusting in me. Ezekiel 17, 15, Zedekiah rebelled against God, and this is how he rebelled. Not by adultery, not by murder. Not... He rebelled by sending ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. So there were times when Israel struggled, and during these trials, or when they were facing problems, instead of turning to God for help, they turned to Egypt or turned to the world. Now, what are we tempted to do when we go through problems? We are tempted to turn to the world for help. 
for a solution. And it doesn't even have to be something terribly immoral. It's not like you're dealing with a financial problem and you're tempted to turn to the world and the world tells you to go steal. I just mean we turn to the world, we embrace, we're tempted to embrace their psychology, we're tempted to embrace their secular philosophies, we're tempted to embrace the world's wisdom. We go through these trials and we are not, we don't handle them spiritually. We look for the world's ways of dealing with things and then we embrace those. And that's one way that we look like Egypt or look like Israel turning to Egypt for help instead of turning to God. And so I would just tell you, when you go through something, don't look to the world for help. Seek to see this resolved by looking for the way the gospel of Jesus Christ would have you navigate through this in a way that pleases him and honors him. So now I've given you this little bigger picture of the typology. So hopefully you can see why throughout the Old Testament it was so bad for God's people to look to Egypt, and then why in the New Testament we see it so strongly condemned to look to the world, return to the world, be a friend of the world. With this in mind, turn to 1 Kings 3. Just the other day, I was looking at this gentleman. I was considering reading one of his books. And I was reading the little author section about him. And I think it said he had a a PhD in psychology. And he's a a pretty prominent Christian speaker. I think he had a PhD in psychology. At least it said this. I know that it said this as I was looking at the book. It said that he's this, um, I think, globally known speaker or travels the globe speaking and then it said, sharing his psychology wherever he goes. And I thought, well, that is just, I mean, obviously I didn't read the book, but I thought, wow, this is a prominent, respected, with some number of people, a Christian, I'm using the title loosely, speaker, and apparently author, and he goes around the world spreading psychology. And maybe people don't see something wrong with that, but these verses say, don't go to the world for help, look to scripture for help. Okay, 1 Kings 3. We're going to look at some verses. We've had two sermons in this chapter. We're not going to look at any verses that we've already looked at. There will be nothing. We're not covering, we're not reviewing anything. This is all new material. Verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter. He brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord in the wall around Jerusalem. So right here we saw, we see Solomon doing things that God told kings not to do in Deuteronomy 17. We see Solomon looking where? Returning where? To Egypt. We see Solomon. Now, I looked, I don't know how many sites or commentaries I looked at. I don't know how much time I committed to this. I couldn't find anyone who could tell me whether this is Solomon's first wife. My suspicion is it it was not Solomon's first wife because he gained this wife for political reasons or so that he could establish an alliance with the nation of Egypt. And he must have had some other wife before this, which means now we see Solomon starting to do what? Multiply wives. And if you've ever wondered this, I'll just make this, I'll make this brief. You could look at some of the, um, the, whether it's the patriarchs or other prominent men in the Old Testament who multiplied wives. And you're multiplying wives when you have two wives. And you can say, well, it looks like it's okay. It's super important to understand that things can be descriptive without being prescriptive. Or in other words, things can be recorded for us, but they're not, or described for us, but they're not being prescribed for us. They're not examples 
for us to follow and that's one of the best examples of something like the whole most of the book of judges here's what's interesting the book of judges is one of the darkest times in israel's history every man did what was right in his own eyes and sometimes people will look at judges like for example deborah's leadership and say well this is what we should do you don't look at israel during their darkest time and try to follow them or do what they're doing you don't look at when man's doing what's right in his own eyes and then say oh that's what we should do and when men were multiplying wives that's one other time you look and say we shouldn't do that so then the obvious question is you say well how do we know when we should do what we should do and when we shouldn't do it or how do we know when we should follow an example or we shouldn't or how do we know when something is prescriptive versus simply descriptive jesus said wisdom is justified by her children which is to say that the wisdom of decisions is justified or declared right by what's produced the children of those decisions so often you can look at a decision and it's justified or declared righteous by what's produced from that decision any instance of polygamy in the old testament or a man introducing a second woman into his relationship with his wife is characterized by what hardship turmoil strife conflict you will not see one instance of polygamy in the old testament that is ever characterized by anything godly or holy such as peace such as greater intimacy such as gentleness such as love it was always problematic the children produced from the decision to be polygamous declares or justifies that it is actually foolishness versus wisdom okay so kings are told not to multiply wise and it seems like solomon's already doing this now here's what you say though you say solomon's compromising but we are at the beginning of first kings 3 and solomon hasn't gotten what yet come on you know we were in this chapter for he hasn't gotten what yet i only heard one person. he hasn't gotten wisdom he gets wisdom in verses 5 through i think verse 13. we looked at that in a sermon and so you can say yeah we see solomon doing some unwise or foolish or compromising things early on but he hasn't been given wisdom yet so it's understandable keep that in mind and look with me at verse 14 another verse we haven't looked at yet this is after he received wisdom god says if you will walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father david walked then i will lengthen your days and this is a super important verse god gives solomon wisdom and we are going to be tempted to think that's it solomon needs everything or solomon is on the path to success now he's been given wisdom he knows exactly what to do he will not struggle he will not fail god has given him all this wisdom everything is going to go perfectly or wonderfully for him after this instead you see god give solomon wisdom and then tell solomon what you must obey you need to apply the wisdom that i give you i mean i think this teaches us such a crucial lesson because we can be so tempted to think well solomon got wisdom so that means everything's going to be fine now he's got what he needs no 
It was a question of whether Solomon was going to apply that wisdom. And this brings us to lesson three. Wisdom must be applied. Wisdom must be applied. It's very important, and I've tried to stress this in the previous sermons, that wisdom only allows us to know what to do. Wisdom is simply having the knowledge to make the right decision we must still make the right decision. Our wisdom shows us the path to take, but we still must take that path. If everyone always applied all of the wisdom that they received, then there would never be what? Fools. Ignorant people are people who haven't been told, who don't know better. We've talked about this. Fools are people who know better, but don't do it. And so here's, what some, here's something that's tr- truly astonishing to me. Solomon serves as the best example in all of Scripture. I mean, if, I'm, if, if, if I say Job is associated with what word? Suffering, right? If I said earlier Moses is associated with the law, Solomon is just associated with wisdom. He wrote the book of it. He's given wisdom. Well, here's what's interesting. Solomon is the best example in all of Scripture of wisdom and of foolishness. If more wisdom raises your accountability and increases the potential for you to be foolish, you can't be a fool unless you know better. You can't be a fool unless you've been given the knowledge to do what's right, and nobody had ever been given more wisdom than Solomon which means nobody in all of history could have been a bigger fool than Solomon. And later in his life, he was. So he really is the best picture in Scripture of a wise person and then later a foolish person because of all of the wisdom that he turned his back on. Turn to 1 Kings 10 with me. Look at verse 26. Now Solomon is wise, or we could wonder if he's wise, or we could wonder if he's applying the wisdom he's been given. Might be a better way to say it. Sol- verse 26, 1 Kings ten twenty-six. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots. He had 12,000 horsemen. I think some other translations argue about this number, but whatever the case is, a bunch of them. Whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. So what's Solomon doing here? He's multiplying horses, exactly what God told kings not to do. Look at verse 27. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. So now what's he doing? He's multiplying wealth. I mean, when silver becomes worthless, you know you've got a lot of gold, right? It's a supply and demand issue. And when people say, oh, that's just silver, I don't want it you know there's a lot of gold. So he's multiplying wealth, just like God told kings not to do. Look in verse 28. Solomon's import of horses, notice this, was from Egypt, and Q and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. Verse 29, a chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria, different kings he'd made alliances with. So right here, what's he doing? 
He's going back to Egypt. He's sending people back to Egypt. The exact thing that God told him not to do. And why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't Solomon have a good relationship with Egypt? I mean, the head of Egypt is his father-in-law, right? And so, of course, he's going to be close. He's going to be building this relationship. Totally foolish. In fact, later, I don't know if this is the case or not, so I confess this is speculative. But later on, when other kings were looking to Egypt for help, why might they have done that? Because Solomon had earlier created such a strong, close relationship between Israel and Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter and setting up those future kings to view the the nation favorably, and it always caused problems. Now, this mentions the verse, it mentions horses, chariots, and Egypt together. When I see horses, chariots, and Egypt together, or if I see Egypt, horses, and chariots together, you know, guess what I think of? I think of Israel going through the Red Sea with Egypt bearing down on them with all their horses and chariots. And so I just look at this and it's like, it just looks wrong. It just feels wrong for, for Solomon to be turning back to Egypt like this. And if you think this is bad, wait until we read the next chapter, which we can't get to this morning. Go ahead and turn to Galatians 3. And while you turn there, I'll just share something. I want to conclude with a few verses in Galatians 3. But as you turn there, kind of let this wash over you a little bit. I don't know whether, I don't have a lot of familiarity with other congregations. So I don't know whether this is true or not of our congregation. Perhaps it is. A few people, you hear something enough times, and then you start to think there could be some truth in it. People have come here, sometimes people have even left here under, usually under uh, good or honorable circumstances, and said, you know, we didn't want to leave. There's just so many neat families at your church. You're so blessed with so many mature, godly, wise families that know the word so well. Let's say that's true. If it is, then this sermon is particularly important because what that means is we have a lot of families here who have a lot of wisdom, which means we have a lot of families here who have high accountability, which means we have a lot of families who need to be applying the wisdom that they're receiving. If you're a child, you're fortunate or blessed because your parents bring you to a church. I don't, there's no dog and pony show. I've never thought there's anything fancy about what I do. I don't even move around. You know, Pastor Nathan makes me look bad pacing around the stage like this. The video guys can't even keep up with him. But for me, I just stand here. I mean, it doesn't get much more boring, but that's because you're, you're here for the Word of God, and that's what you receive. And so if you're a child, your parents have brought you someplace where you can hear the Word of God, which means you have high accountability. You're receiving wisdom. So all of us, and I, I mean myself, as much as I'm preaching to you guys, I'm definitely preaching to myself, probably 30 hours a week I get to spend in God's Word. Even when I'm emailing people, I'm sending them verses or thinking about God's Word. So this applies to me more than it even applies to anyone else. And so we have very high accountability. It is very important for us to ensure that we are applying the wisdom that we have received. It is so tempting to think that just because we heard the sermon or went to the church or went to the conference or read the book or listened to this or watched that, that we've done enough. Or in other words, and that's why it says, do not be deceived associated with being a hearer without being a doer. We can deceive ourselves and think that we've done enough simply hearing. But God says, no, you need to make, you've done enough when you're doing what you have received. And Solomon is one of the premier examples of how much you can hear or receive and then fail by not applying it. Now, if you're in Galatians 3, I want you to take your minds back to the typology that I mentioned earlier. In lesson 2, Part four, I said that Israel's journey is a type of our journey, or in other words, as Israel travels from Egypt to the promised land, 
through, through the wilderness, you know, getting the law at Sinai. It's a picture or type of our journey as believers. But if you listen to me say that, there might be a thought in your mind that when Israel left Egypt, two groups developed. And we've already talked about those two groups a little bit. There's one group that remained under Moses or under the law. And where did they die? In the wilderness. They never entered the promised land. They never found themselves under Joshua or Yeshua or under Jesus. Or in other words, they never made it into the rest that God had for them. Now here's what's unfortunate, and even some of the hymns do it. You know, we love the hymns, but sometimes you meet people and it's almost like, you know, hymns are about as close to being inspired as, God, as God's word. No, there's, I, I love hymns and I appreciate the theology in many of them, but unfortunately, some hymns compare the promised land with heaven, and that's just not true. Aren't you thankful we're not going to go into heaven and then fight a bunch of battles? So the promised land has never been a picture of heaven. We don't cross the Jordan and then go to, go to heaven and fight all the enemies who are there. The promised land has always been a picture of the rest that we have in Christ. Don't take my opinion for that. Go ahead and read Hebrews 4 and see for yourself. But when, when Israel, the second group, transitioned under the leadership of Joshua from Moses, they entered the promised land, and then they experienced that rest. And here's the application for us. Moses could only take Israel so far. Just like what can only take us so far? The law. I mean, you, as you try to live under Moses or live under the law, what do you largely experience? Frustration. You're banging your head against the wall when you recognize that you don't keep it. You think you're getting down, you know, 613 commands. You're getting down these 10. You had a good day with these 10, but then you're failing in these other five. You start to get them down. There's still 20 other ones that you're messing up. Just as Israel couldn't enter under Moses, we can't enter under the law. And why is that? Because whenever you're under Moses, or whether, whenever you're under the law, what do you not experience? You don't, ex- there's no rest. There's no rest whatsoever. It's constantly striving. You've got to transition to being under Joshua. Why? It's beautiful the way God does things. I mean, the appreciation that I have, I don't know how someone could read the word and not be a believer. Because to see what happened with Moses, how Moses couldn't enter the promised land, and then to see how that's a picture of the Christian life and how we have to enter the promised land under Joshua, because there's no rest under the law. As long as you're under the law, all the striving, all of the laboring is exhausting. You can only have the rest in the promised land by being under Joshua. And you see this illustrated in Galatians 3. That's why I wanted you to turn there. Look, in verse, look at verse 23 with me. Israel was under Moses, just like we were under the law. It says, before faith came, which means before we could put our faith in Christ, we were held captive under the law, or kept under Moses, under his leadership, imprisoned until the coming faith, or until Joshua, or until Jesus would be revealed. And then as Israel was under Joshua, we then find ourselves, as, as Israel then moves to be under Joshua, we move to be under Christ, Galatians 3.24. So then the law, or Moses, was our guardian until Christ, or until Joshua came, Yeshua came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And then as Israel's no longer under Moses, when they're under Joshua, we're no longer under the law when we're under Jesus. I mean, the, the break was clean. Let me ask this. Was the break clean 
when they moved from being under Joshua to being under, when they moved from being under Moses to being under Joshua, they weren't like under both of them at the same time. It wasn't like, well, we've got a little bit of Moses over us and a little bit of Joshua. No, it's like Moses, he doesn't cross the Jordan. God, he dies up there on the mount and God disposes of his body. And then Joshua's in charge and they're under him. They're not mixed. These covenants are not. Because you can't have rest if you're going to stay under Moses. So Galatians 3.25, but now that faith or Joshua or Jesus has come, we are no longer under a guardian or we are no longer under Moses, no longer under the law. Now listen to this interesting verse. Hebrews 4.8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Let me say this one more time. Really pay attention for me, okay? I know we're getting to the end of the sermon. Just pretend like we're not, okay? (laughs) If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And what's weird about this? It seems like Joshua did give them rest. It seems like Joshua is the one who did bring them into the promised land. And so you can say, well, why did God say that he didn't? Because Joshua did not give them the true and greater rest. The true and greater rest is not associated with any physical land. It's entirely spiritual It's the rest that Jesus described, that he offers when he says, Matthew 11, 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here's the thing. Even, even, the, even the Israelites who entered the promised land under Joshua never experienced the true and greater rest that God had for his people because it was only found through Christ. And so the question I'm thinking about is, if the Israelites were expected to follow Joshua, this earthly, fallible leader, then how much more are we expected to follow Jesus? And when we talk about wisdom, I'll say this. Wise people want to be under Jesus. Wise people want to make that transition to be under Joshua. They do not want to remain under the law anymore. It's only foolish people that want to be under the law. It's only foolish people that don't understand how far short they fall of the glory of God. If we don't follow Jesus, we're still under Moses. We're going to be measured by the standard that the law sets, seeing if we have been perfectly righteous and obeyed all of those commandments. We're wandering in the wilderness like Israel was. Their wilderness was physical, ours is spiritual, but for people who remain under Moses, they perish. They perish in the wilderness just like the people under Moses perished in the wilderness. So this morning when I talk about wisdom and foolishness, think about the true captain of your salvation that you have in Joshua who wants to offer you the rest, the true and greater rest that's available through the gospel and a relationship with him. Father, we thank you for Christ and the rest that he offers us We thank you that we don't need to remain under Moses or under the law, but that Christ brings us into the true and greater promised land, a rest that's available to us seven days per week, not just that seventh day in the Old Testament, but a rest that we can experience through Jesus every day, resting in his sovereignty, resting in the work that he's done on the cross for us, resting in the forgiveness that's afforded through the gospel, resting in the righteousness that's been imputed to us because of what he's done, resting in the unrighteousness and sin of ours that has been imputed to him 
imputed to his account and the punishment that he took for those sins. So we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to live in light of this reality, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.